Hello, I'm Nancy Hiller. I'm a furniture maker and cabinet maker in Bloomington, Indiana. Welcome to Cut the Craft. I mean, we've only done 20-something interviews at this point, so it's nothing crazy, but... That's a lot, though. <laughs> but it's shown me a lot of the university universal nature of like just the appeal of doing things with your hands which i know isn't like a crazy thought but right it's beautiful to see that stitched across these different mediums mm -hmm. yeah but then even within the same medium i love here it's like you know everyone has their own experiences everyone's bringing something different to the table so there's this like sort of dual thing going on with at the same time as you're seeing this universal kind of um trend happening mm -hmm. you're also seeing those individual stories that all lead there so it's this yeah kind of, i just it's really fun yeah <laughs> no i think it's good yeah it's, it's it's very important for people who aren't in the business of making things of different sorts to hear stories mm -hmm. of those who do i think and mm -hmm. i think a lot of people really enjoy it it really opens up yeah new world yeah awesome okay well welcome to cut the craft everybody i'm brian and i'm amy and we are here with nancy hiller a furniture maker uh living in bloomington indiana where i am right now so nancy <laughs> we're so excited to have you on the show thank you for joining us well thank you for having me yeah awesome um so nancy i'm sure a lot of our listeners are pretty familiar uh with you but for anyone who's not, could you tell us about what you make and your process? That's kind of a big scope of work there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you're, feel free to answer however you want. <laughs> sure, sure. Thanks. I specialize in custom work. Um, mm -hmm. And the reason for that is integral to the process, i.e. I've never had the capital to just make spec pieces or to even buy and keep the inventory to just do spec work um, or try to sell through galleries. So I've always found that doing custom work, primarily for clients in my area, but also um, around the Midwest and the East Coast, enables me to make a living and keep the cash moving, or rather the electronic money, whatever flowing through my business and um, so it's custom work. I specialize in work for old houses and other types of buildings there in Hall Residential because I've always loved old buildings and um, there are not that many people in my experience in our area at least who really pay attention to kinds of details um, in architectural surroundings or in cabinet design and furniture design that really um, make the difference between something that looks truly period appropriate or context appropriate and something that you could have found more generically. Mm. Um, so that's a quick overview. I also write, and that has been over the last 15 years or so. I've done more and more writing for fine woodworking, magazines, old house interiors, 
mm-hmm. American Bungalow, Old House Journal, and then a number of books and blog posts, including a couple so far for Moscow Press. Mm. Cool. Well, I guess I should start out by saying I'd recently purchased your book, Kitchen Think, which we had talked about a little bit before the interview. Um, and I loved sort of the scope and your ability to, it, I mean, it definitely seemed by the projects you had in there. It was like you covered anything from like, I don't know, like fifth, like retro diner kind of aesthetics and stuff to like these like 19th century, like period spaces and things like that. So do you find yourself doing like um, a lot of research for each of those projects in order to become better acquainted with that period? Or at this point in your career, you, you might have just like a good running catalog of, Oh, okay. I know how this works. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me just be clear that the one that you're referring to in kitchen sink, which is a diner, I had nothing to do with. I just wanted to include it. um, It's not a design I would have come up with, Um, but it is so completely what it is over the top and ridiculously creative and fun that I've admired that kitchen and actually the whole house that Gary and Linda Anderson um, have created um, from a mid-century home that was pretty nondescript originally. They've really just gone through and added their own personality and flair to every room. So I had nothing to do with that kitchen and nor is it one I would have designed in the way that it was designed but I think it's a great example of just going totally joyously over the top Mm -hmm. Um, so that's just to give you a little more information about that particular kitchen but um, most of the time I am not I am not uh, not only am I not researching just sort of some general period appropriateness I would advise anyone who's interested in working in period or period-inspired ways to avoid that approach because every house and every kitchen is going to be different than cities hmm. are. Every house and all kitchens are different. Um, you can They have never been designed um, based on age, you know, the period in which they were built alone, even though we frequently talk about them in that way, um, there are always all kinds of other influences at play, such as what was the budget for the job? Were the people interested in a sort of high-end architect-designed look, which would typically um, be far more modern and forward-looking than something designed for someone who was not at all plugged into the world of architects and high-end design. And the same holds true today, obviously, if you really look around and think about it. So my advice and my approach um, have always been to look at the particular house for which you are designing and take what cues you can find from it. So, for example, um, there will often be uh, 
original cabinets in a basement or a garage. So mm -hmm. you can see what was originally there. And if mm -hmm. there aren't, um, sometimes there will be a neighboring house of the same age and architectural style that can give you clues. And I won't belabor this because it's all explained in detail in different things. But I just want to, um, you know, in the interest of answering your question, going back in time, of course, I've read books about strict, you know, period design. Um, and one of the good ones about kitchens is Jane Powell's book, Bungalow Kitchen. But again, that was written, I think, in the early 1990s. And frankly, at this point, Jane was a luminary in the field of period design and bungalow restoration. But um, some of the perspectives are richly scholarly and super well-researched. But in her constructive mood, um, many of the kitchens that she designed back in those days, which, you know, 30 years ago now, are, um, I would call them somewhat more naive in terms of their details and materials that she used. And mm -hmm. one of my goals with Kitchen Think was to update thinking about this whole subject of period-inspired and context-inspired kitchens um, in a more nuanced and sophisticated way. But again, I would encourage anyone interested in this subject to buy Jane's book, Bungalow Kitchens, because it's a real classic and huh. full of information. Wow. Cool. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Are you interested in learning more about woodworking but don't know where to start? Well, today's your lucky day because in Brasstown, North Carolina, the John C. Campbell Folk School's classes have resumed, and they also have lots of scholarship opportunities. You can browse their e-catalog to see current course offerings, request a print catalog, register for classes, and apply for scholarships all at folkschool.org. Once again, that's folkschool.org. North House Folk School teaches traditional craft online and on the shores of Lake Superior. Learn everything from basketry to fly fishing and shoemaking to woodworking of all sorts. North House will host the 2021 Wooden Boat Show both in person on campus June 18th through 20th and online June 3rd through 25th. Community, craft, sparkling waters, northern adventures, and summer's lights are at the heart of North House's efforts. Be sure to visit northhouse.org for more information. That's interesting to me because the, the house I live in right now, I think was built in like the 1920s and it's a bungalow too. And it might've been um, from like the Sears catalog. <laughs> Oh yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, that's I'll have to look her up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe she can. Well, you know, there are, um, books, there are reprints of Sears house catalogs and certainly mm -hmm. the Aladdin house catalog. Um, Aladdin. 
from, I don't remember which year or years, but there are reprints of old house catalogs that are absolutely, they're invaluable um, documents mm -hmm. just to get a feel for culture of the time, at least in the prefab housing industry. It wasn't prefab, but it was kit houses. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so a homeowner or a builder would be able to buy the whole including mm -hmm. the kitchen cabinets yeah the windows the window trim the baseboard all of it um yeah. and it would come on a railroad card it was a very cool cool um way of providing the materials for a sort of pre-designed house so that you could put it together affordably and it's different yeah that's so interesting. It's kind of like the beginnings of how I think a lot of people approach houses now or, you know what I mean? Like you go like pick out a yeah, a yeah. house and someone just assembles it for you <laughs> like Lincoln Logs. <laughs> right. Well, it was really at a, this, the turn of the century, 20th century mm -hmm. was a really pivotal time. There were a lot of changes in Mm -hmm. And um, transportation, uh, as well as advertising and changing roles of women and men in American society, Western society in general, and all of these influences affected the, um, they all colored the development of this industry, the hit house industry, and mm -hmm. the provision of house parts and, um, you know, including all the stuff that goes into that. Hmm. Wow. Oh, man. So can you tell us a little bit about your dad's first home-cooked meal? <laughs> I don't know that it was his first, his first um, home-cooked meal, but uh, it was the first one that my sister and I were aware of. And it was when my, our mother was in the hospital as I recall, and he was in charge of us, which was an unfamiliar responsibility. So he figured that he would make tuna fish salad for dinner, and <laughs> all you had to do was open up a can of tuna and add some mayonnaise, and he didn't know which spices my mother used, so being a <laughs> rather funny guy he just went through the spice cabinet adding <laughs> a little bit of everything oh, which no. of course we remembered you know oh. little girl he was very little at the time and we thought it just as hilarious as when he would get a piece of candy and unwrap it and eat the wrapper instead of the candy <laughs> so I mean, he's still alive, both of our parents are, but he was always the goofy one, which we really appreciated. <laughs> That's awesome. That's so good. I think I might have to steal that with my nieces and nephews. <laughs> yeah, although the candy thing is like, what's in those wrappers? Today they're all made of plastic. So That's I would, true. You know, back true. then they were actually made of paper. 
Right, right, right. Yeah, <laughs> I think I might, I might uh, do a little bit of uh, trickery about that. <laughs> Probably yeah, not. Yeah, totally yeah. Totally eat it. Probably a better idea. Or just dip it in some Purell first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Get some uh, organic brown unbleached paper wrappers. <laughs> <laughs> do your own thing. Right, right. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. Um, okay, so can you tell us about your beginnings in woodworking? And your romantic notions of making a living with your hands, how Roy Griffiths uh, helped disabuse you of those notions? I had no plan to become a woodworker. I was very good at school, and so I always, everybody assumed I would go to college. And I worked so hard on my studies in high school that I felt really burned out of so I took a year off and I applied to Cambridge and we were living in England at the time. I didn't really want to go to college at that time and I thought, well, I'll just apply to Cambridge and I won't get in, so I won't have to go. But I got in and <laughs> so I went because I thought, well, there must be some reason why I got in. <laughs> so um, I have to go and figure it out and I'm sure it will all be worthwhile and and I loved the scholarly dimension of it and really the something of a monastic existence in great contrast to the majority of my classmates who were having a great time partying. And, um, <laughs> but then at the end of the semester, I went back to London to this super working class apartment that my boyfriend and I shared at the time and I just thought what am I doing and I'm editing my language for politeness um <laughs> what am I doing you know I mean I love it but it feels very self-indulgent and just generally selfish to be mm -hmm. studying the obscure well they aren't obscure they're important classical languages um Hebrew and Aramaic but mm -hmm. Um, I, it just seemed super self-indulgent, and I decided not to go back. So I dropped out, and um, so I had a just a basic clerical job selling stuff at the Automobile Association store. It was their main headquarters in London, the equivalent of AAA over here, and. And then we had a chance to move out to the countryside where my mother and stepfather had bought a house. And there was a little kind of cottage attached to it. And they said we could rent it. So, so we did. And um, it was there that I just started trying to build things out of just scrap wood more than anything with the occasional, like, one by four or one by sixes at from the lumber yard and my stepfather who was always a critic of everything I did um, just constantly derided my efforts and told me I was useless and one day he added you should do a carpentry course um, just because it was another kind of insult you know. so gosh I went down to the local community college and asked about carpentry courses and 
because this is a little disappointing, but the man who was in charge of the woodworking department assumed I meant furniture, I think, because I was a woman. And anyway, um, but he was right. That is what I meant. It's just um, <laughs> there were no women in the carpentry courses, the African <laughs> carpentry courses, and I was the only one in the furniture building course. But so that's how I got started. That's how I um, I did a year of basic um, furniture, traditional furniture making training. So it was hand cut joinery, French polishing, a little bit of turning. We didn't do any carving, I'm afraid. Um, just that kind of thing. And then some basic machine skills, but I was terrified of the machines. So I focused on hand tools. And then after that, I thought I could just start my own business. And just by virtue of having a business, people would come and buy things and order things, which of course is completely not how it works. So especially in the era before the internet, when nobody knew what I was doing, you know, you, you had to put an ad in the local news. Mm -hmm. or somewhere else in order to get your name out. So um, I was, I put an ad in the paper to try to find a proper workshop because at the time I was just working, I made a little workbench and I had a little combination cleaner joiner and a little table saw maybe and an ELU router, which was a really nice tool back they were bought by Black and & Decker. And, um, and I was just doing it in the dining room of the house where we lived and making a huge mess. Uh, <laughs> and so, so when I put the classified ad in the local paper, Roy Griffiths answered it by phone and, and said he had a workshop and could he come out and see my portfolio? So it, the long and the short of this is he actually was looking for an employee and I became that employee. So I wasn't running my own business at that point. He hired me. And I learned a lot from him. I had been trained to a perfectionistic standard. And whenever I had asked my instructors, um, is this good enough? you know, for the bit of a hand-cut dovetail or mm -hmm. the finish of some fine sanding by hand. And and they would say, um, is it good enough for you? You know, what do you think? And they always put the weight of that determination back on the student. So, so you constantly felt like, oh, well, it's not good enough. Then I guess, yeah. you know, all the neuroses <laughs> kicked in. So when right. I went to work for Roy, I, of course, it was my first woodworking job. And so I wanted to do my very, very best. And he came back from London where he was during the week after the first week I'd been there and said, this is all you've done. You know, you should have made more progress than this. And you don't, you know, you cannot afford a dovetail joint. Yeah. And you can't sand things this long. And 
mm-hmm. just have to be much more efficiently minded. So, mm-hmm. so that was the beginning of the education in how some of the considerations that are critical if you really are going to try to make a living by um, as sorry if you're really going to try to make a living full time from furniture making or cabinet jeez that it reminds me a lot of um when we had an, a few interviews back with a bookbinder or book artist um, named Haiti Kyle, and she it had a very similar experience when she was learning. And it, oh. it was just anytime, anytime she would show, you know, this part of a book she was working on to the instructor, they would always say, well, like, well, what do you think? Is it good enough for you? And then she was always like, Ugh. Ugh. and then she'd go back and redo it. And- <laughs> That's so fun. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, it's also so interesting because it, um, I didn't really come from a formal background when it comes to bookbinding. A lot of my stuff was through short workshops and things like that. Oh and, wow! And so it was. It's it's so funny though because when I I would talk to people who were in like kind of like bookbinding grad school, you know, we have some some master's programs and a few certificate programs and stuff, and um, they. <laughs> they always just had the most exacting standards for everything. And I was kind of already, you know, trying to make it happen on my own. And I was like, well, we'll see what happens when you all get out of school, because that's not really sustainable (laughs) if you want to make a living. (laughs) Yeah, it's frustrating. And that's really interesting because I know nothing about the bookbinding craft, uh, although I've met a number of people who got into it. But, it's such a fascinating craft to me because, if anything, woodworking is like, well, of course there are a handful of woodworkers. <laughs> Bookbinders? Are you kidding me? That is so esoteric. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, oh my God, it's like being a scribe, mm. you know, <laughs> during illuminated manuscripts or something yes. for the Book of Kells. I mean, it's just so unusual um (laughs) it makes me want to learn more about that really not with an not because i have any interest in doing it but just yeah that's right right so fascinating Mm -hmm. here's a little poem i wrote for this occasion it's called waste if everything i've ever wasted came back to me one day I'd throw myself in the trash to hide from what it'd have to say. Eh, not my best, but worth a heap more here than on a piece of paper in some dump. May save me some trouble, too. I posit the world would be a better place, and so would the soil in your lawn, if dogs were allowed to defecate wherever they wanted without dog owners bagging it in plastic and throwing it in a can lined with another plastic bag which then gets tossed into landfills most of us ignore to maintain a false cleanliness because people are unnerved by stepping in the stuff or their manicured lawn being tampered with. Why does the atmosphere have to suffer because we've got so far away from ourselves we're repelled by natural smells instead of accepting them and paying closer attention to where we're walking while we live an enriched life? And if you're on the other end of this saying, hey, it's an issue of disease, I get that. 
But shouldn't we be trying to take the disease out of the waste instead of concealing the issue with more waste? Imagine a house made of animated dog feces slowly sludging up your yard like the slime monster from Ghostbusters. An articulate dog poop mansion of neglect saying, We've come together here to remind you that we have certain purposes you've ignored. So now we're your neighbor. And we're sharing the mailbox because our owner is more familiar with it than you know. What do you think? You want that? Didn't think so. What's that? You want the opposite of that? Well, what's that? I don't know. It certainly isn't how we do or build things now, or we wouldn't need to work double time to at least try and reverse our toxic impact. Luckily, Jeffrey Hart has a heart for this mode of living, and he's paid us a virtual visit. Jeffrey runs his own podcast called Building Sustainability. I play on that phrase because there's the literal, as in he physically builds sustainable structures, and then there's building awareness around living sustainably. Tune in next episode for his insights on biophilic design and other ways to change the way we live by changing what we use and how we make the places we live in and more. I gotta go. My dog's barking. You know, reading through uh, Kitchen Think, you talked sort of about the like poo-pooing of cabinetry. That... Oh, of course, yeah. And... <laughs> That was something I was totally unaware of. So I didn't realize there was sort of like that hierarchy of like, you know, these different fields within the field, I oh, guess. No. Oh, my God. Yes. Is that true? I'm like, wait, I have no idea. I don't know what's going on, Nancy. You got to fill me in. <laughs> oh, it's totally true. Yeah, there are so many woodworkers. Um, many of them are hobby woodworkers. And I mean, absolutely no disparagement by that i'm only mentioning it because if you have a job you know as a sergeant in the <laughs> army or as a um, insurance agent or whatever a surgeon then you don't have to worry about earning your livelihood from furniture making or woodworking mm -hmm. and you can spend you have the luxury of spending as much time as you would like on it and a lot of people find a lot of people who go into the field thinking they're going to do it for the rest of their lives for a living realize this is just not as fun when I can't mm -hmm. do the level <laughs> the quality of work that I want to do mm -hmm. and I totally absolutely get that mm -hmm. and um, I mean there are people who manage to maintain the same kinds of standards that they learned in their training and make a living. But the market for work of that caliber, no matter what anyone wants to say, I mean, it's a limited market mm -hmm. because even what I do for decidedly middle-class customers is expensive. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I'm doing it pretty efficiently and as affordably as I can on the whole. I mean, you're always trying to find that good spot between affordable and your innate or trained 
perfectionism. Um, so, yeah, because um, the majority of Bilkins and Kitchen Cabinet work involved the use of sheet goods rather than solid wood, mm -hmm. and because those types of work generally, not always, involve um, machine-made joinery mm -hmm. far more than and cut joinery, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all the way down the line. Um, and because built-ins tend to be associated, well, they don't tend, they're always associated with a house or another building that's implied by their identity as built-ins. And um, all of that just generally results in a lower level of respect. Um, unless you're talking about something like, you know, the fabulous and widely admired Shaker built-ins mm. in um, historic Shaker communities or mm -hmm. fantastic spiral staircases and high-end elaborate trim in fancy houses or public buildings. Those, those kinds of work tend to have higher respect, but in general, kitchen building kitchen cabinets. I, I've spent my life in this sort of intermediate place between carpenters, who, at least when I was starting out in England, was definitely a lower level <laughs> than cabinet. Pinkies <laughs> up, and then freestanding make makers of freestanding really high-end art furniture, you know, or federal-style furniture over here. So, yeah, there are people, it's just a basic sociological reality. People feel the need to break themselves and others down into groups. And yeah. in this mm -hmm. case, one of the group identifiers is opinions regarding caliber. My gosh. I just, I, for some reason, it's just making me think of like how I don't understand any of that stuff. Like, <laughs> I have the like this natural, natural predisposition to just be like, why, why does this, who is they, and why are they making decisions about like what's good and what's not good? Like, wh who, where, oh. where's this book that right. like tells everybody <laughs> what to believe? <laughs> because I didn't get that copy. Like. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's not really a book. It's um, <laughs> if it's conversations oh, and so with real people and just hanging around building sites. And hmm. Not hanging around. I don't. Know, <laughs> working Good on them. You know, talking with clients yeah. and finding out some of their ideas and um, really, it's and hopefully it's becoming less pronounced. Mm -hmm. this kind of prejudice but mm -hmm. to be honest i don't really no but Dang. that's just you know me whatever and and i don't <laughs> i kind of i care but i also don't care because i know why right. i do what i do i've justified it to myself 
12 billion times during the <laughs> monologues I have with myself while I'm standing or routing dovetails for a kitchen's worth of drawers. So it's just something I accept. But if I have the luxury of stating my opinion, which I often do in writing for Lost Art Press and Chris, that's part of Chris's MO also is just to call people on there. Am I allowed to say bullshit? And so if I am given that liberty, I will use it to just say, guys, there's a reason why we do things this way. <laughs> and it's because we can't make a living unless we do, or I can't. Right. It's part of how I make a living. Right. Of course right. there will be isolated jobs in which I'm working for someone who can afford something else. And I'm like, yeah, I will <laughs> cut the dovetails for these upper cabinets all by hand out of Hollywood, whatever. But those are not common in my personal experience. Yeah. Mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. I admire your, uh, like, I guess, candor or your ability to just be like, this is just what it is. You know, mm -hmm. sometimes it's like this, sometimes right. it's like that. Mm -hmm. And you got to do what you got to do to make this work. Mm -hmm. And it's nice when someone will just say that instead of like, yeah. kind of doing the uh, do as I say, not as I do right. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, so. it's how I was brought up pretty much. And um, certainly ever since my dad decided that once he gained a, what I would call an accurate read on the nature of his work in public relations when my sister and I were very little kids and, and realized that he was doing what people today call branding and marketing, you know, he was, he was putting a delightful and desirable spin on things or services that many people actually don't need and many of them are bad for people <laughs> as well as animals and plants. And so he just thought about that and realized I can't live with myself and keep doing this work. And fortunately my mother supported him in that mm -hmm. decision and so he quit that line of work and took primarily in writing and advocacy to work in the area of um, what we used to call alternative tourism. Hmm. So, so I was brought up with this, but also being a woman in what was especially 40 years ago, very much a man's field and constantly listening to disparaging remarks and having decades of experience um, with people who have much lower expectations of me because I'm a woman. They think I don't really know what I'm doing. I mean, this has changed a lot, but oh my gosh, it was just the way it was for so long. And, and the only way to combat that is to show people that they are wrong and call them out. Because if all you do is show them they're wrong, you're going to have a much a much smaller impact mm -hmm. than if you also say, here's why, and let me explain this to you, mm -hmm. and there's this and this and this. Right, right. <laughs> of course, there are plenty of people who don't want to hear it, yeah. but 
there are others who do and other people who come after me and after the rest of us benefit because of our outspokenness. So, yeah. you know, what's not to like? Right. I've always been an outsider. So having a certain percentage of the population and my readers or whatever, who think, oh, God, she's just she's full of herself. It's nothing <laughs> to do with being full of yourself. <laughs> being assertive is not being full of yourself. You know, explaining how things appear to you based on your experience is not being full of yourself. Being able to articulate ideas and make reasoned arguments that are devoid of logical fallacies is a good thing, not a bad thing. (laughs) You know, so I'm lucky I had the education that I did, which was because the grandparents paid for it. Um, and that has been my most valuable asset throughout my life. And I am thankful for it every day. And I know that because I use it in certain ways, some other people get some benefit from my outspoken. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty much the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I... It's one of those things where it's like if you're confronted with bullies, um, I mean, it just sort of goes back to like the playground where it's like if somebody's bullying you, yeah. the best thing you can do is yeah. just be like, no, I refuse this and I'm not going to put up with it anymore, you know? And I'll, I would say 80% of the time they don't expect it and then they they respect you for calling out like the energy that they're putting into the situation or it's like, Hey, no, I don't think so. (laughs) Just stop it right now. Some of them respect you. And I think some of them go to online forums where they bitch about you, but whatever. (laughs) I I don't know that anyone bitches about me online. I suspect I'm not important enough, but um, they do do make, they do some of it in the comment sections of some of the blog posts I write for Fine Woodworking and Lost Art Press. So, so I'm aware that, you know, this attitude and this <laughs> MO are not universally appreciated. And, well, what's new? <laughs> <laughs> well, how, how do you feel, if at all, that, um, you know, writing, I mean, you've, whether it's blog posts or in print and books and, and whether they're like how to's or more about your experiences, like how has that played a role sort of, or or felt like it's given you freedom or have you heard that it's opened more doors for like, you know, other uh, women or other gender minorities coming after you? Um, How has that kind of played a role? Um, It definitely has enriched my life and my work. Um, Writing has brought me tons of opportunities for satisfying work, both in the shop and in writing. Um, I can't just do one or the other. For the first many years of my career, I only worked in the shop and I didn't do any writing for publication. And I felt... I was very frequently just depressed Mm -hmm. and I felt like, oh my God, how many more times am I going to be doing this same basic process 
Mm. You know, in okay, mm. different materials for a different customer, but it's the same basic work, day in, day out. Mm -hmm. And I found that grindingly depressing. Mm. Um, and mm. so I never stayed that long in any of the woodworking jobs I had, like maybe two years, you know, at any single job. Mm -hmm. um, and And it was really... I, I have also been a loner for much of my life, so that brings its own sort of, I don't know, challenges and aids to happiness. Um, mm -hmm. But I definitely felt sort of marginalized by myself, you know, mm -hmm. because I had chosen this career. Mm -hmm. I wasn't that interested in having friends other than just a few and so once i realized that you know over the years and i've been quite open about this for example in my book making things work i i realized nobody was really going to hire me for any other job even though i tried to get out of woodworking a few times during the course of my career and I realized, so I'm just going to have to do something to make this more sustainable for me at an emotional and just sort of psychotherapeutic level, you know. <laughs> yeah. How am mm -hmm. I going to deal with this reality and this work and bring more joy into it so that I don't feel depressed? And, and so what happened was, you know, all of the years I've, worked in this field, I've always had these lively internal conversations going on in my head. And usually they would center around some stupid comment that someone had made. <laughs> Instead of just having these arguments with these interlocutors in my head who existed in real life, they were the ones who had made these comments, mm -hmm. I just started thinking, you know, I can write essays. That's how I got into I got a scholarship because I could write essays and argue well. So I'm just going to start, I'm going to write an essay and see if I can get it published. And so the first one I did was about the value of things, how, how we ascribe value to them and why something that appears so expensive that the person's neighbors are outraged by her profligate spending, <laughs> you know, um, like why that is actually not expensive and why she spent what she did. And so showing the relationship, in other words, of when you spend this money, here's what you're supporting. You're not just spending it, quote unquote, on yourself because you're so selfish. You're supporting <laughs> a community of makers and people who do things, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. And yeah. you're supporting people who produce building products and yeah. just all kinds of things. You're supporting your local economy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and so I wrote an essay and it, I was just extremely lucky that I had just recently come back from a conference on the East Coast. It was a historic preservation and traditional building conference where I had met the editor of Old House Interiors magazine. Her name is Patricia Poor, 
And the only reason I met her is because she saw my bio in the conference pamphlet and she was intrigued to see that I was a woodworker with a background in religious studies because her background was religious studies and anthropology, something like that. Mm. And so she had come to my talk and invited me out to dinner afterwards, which I couldn't, I couldn't accept her invitation because I already had plans, but I got in touch with her afterwards. And I just sent her this essay and said, here's an essay I wrote. And this was back before the Great Recession. So she sent me back an email and said, this is great. May I publish it and pay you $900? And I was like, Whoa. <laughs> again, editing my language. Well, that would be lovely. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. And, and I can tell you that most people do not pay me $900 for an essay anymore. Uh-huh. I mean, that was just it. <laughs> the whole economics of publishing were different before 2008. Mm-hmm. But um, anyway, so that was how I first got something of this nature published. And after that, I was like, this is cool. It opens up a whole new op- uh, a whole new community of readers to mm-hmm. me. And, and so I just started sending out proposals and trying to get things published. And that was how I got published in Fine Woodworking. And that really started it. But it was fantastic because it brought this whole intellectual into my daily work hmm. that had only existed inside my head and was usually very angry because hmm. I was usually most exercised by comments that I thought were just that were just so glaringly ignorant and it wasn't mm-hmm. they were not from ignorant people the people often have doctorates it's just that they knew nothing about the economics of running a business let alone a small craft business. Mm-hmm. And so I just decided I'll make it part of my business to help educate educators. <laughs> Many of them are professors. And, and I don't mean that in a sarcastic way. It was just it, there's clearly a need for people to understand their local economies better. Mm-hmm. And so... So that was how I got into it, and, and that certainly elevated awareness of my work and me and brought me new woodworking commissions as well as um, requests for writing. And that has resulted in me being a much happier person. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I- I was just going to say, can you imagine how angry um, those, you know, your customers' neighbors would be if they found out that that woodworker was also making $900 to write? <laughs> no, I don't think they'd be angry. I, I, know, you're, you're, I know what you're saying, and I, I get that the move you've made with that information, but most of them are great people. Yeah. And once yeah, they yeah. understand this, they drop that sort of, you know, this is a problem in American culture, and also I experienced mm-hmm. it in England, this sort of sense of, well, who can afford that? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. actually a lot of people can, mm-hmm. you know, just because, mm-hmm. I mean, I couldn't afford to be my customer mm-hmm. for most things, but that doesn't mean other people can. Mm-hmm. And people of 
relatively modest needs. I mean, when I say relatively modest, I mean, I am working for what I think of as ordinary people. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, I'm not, my charges are pretty darn modest mm-hmm. um, in the trade. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, certainly at the national level. Yeah. And so it's just a matter of understanding and, and part of the anger, the anger comes from me being angry that they would even think these things. And that's <laughs> not fair of you to be angry because you can't hold it against someone that she or he isn't aware of something that they've never had a chance to learn about. Totally. I think people trick themselves into saying they can't afford something, but it's a lot of times just because they wouldn't spend money on that normally. At, or like, right. you know, it's like what it's, it goes according to your priorities. If you're super into cars, totally. if you're super into cars, which I am absolutely not, you would spend <laughs> tons and tons of money on your car. Um, and I would say I could never afford doing what you're doing with your car, but that's really just right. because I would rather spend it on a nice rug. <laughs> right. You know, totally. No, I'm with you. I mean, and then there are people who really and truly are, they have to spend every penny on food, medical expenses and housing. Yeah. And I get yeah, that. Totally. And most of those people I'm not working for, not because I don't appreciate them and respect them, mm-hmm. Because I can't make a living doing what I do mm-hmm. for what they can afford. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but you're absolutely correct that in so many of the cases that I'm referring to, it is a matter of perspective and values mm-hmm. rather than um, literally not being able to afford. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, yeah, I'll ch- I'll cheap jokes aside on my part. I think that that um, I really I really appreciate your words in that way because mm-hmm. I think that I experienced that a lot with the little with the books that I make where people come in with a certain price expectation, but then a lot of times when you give a quote, it there's that initial shock. Yeah, but then people, but then it's kind of like they've had they have a little time to think about it, and they're like, okay, and then it re- it totally readjusts people's you know kind of i guess uh expectation for those prices from then on out Mm -hmm. but yeah so anyway thank you i really (laughs) i love your perspective this is awesome (laughs) well i'm just trying to be fair you know fair to everyone to the extent that i can and i'm sure that i routinely fall short of that but it's a good goal Mm -hmm. (laughs) yes (laughs) yes Yes. (laughs) North Bennett Street School's last in-the-making event of their spring season is a conversation from Venice with Italian carver Paolo Brandolisio, one of only five remaining artisans who know how to hand-carve the orlock of a gondola. Join them on Thursday, May 27th from 12 noon to 1.30 p.m. EDT and register at nbss.edu slash itm. Okay. What about um, uh, woodworking satisfies something that like you don't feel you'd get from another career? And what are, I, well, you went over the challenges, but 
if there are any other ones, we'd be interested in knowing those. You mean satisfaction, right? Yeah, like what do you what what do you get out of it? Like what gets right. you up in the morning? Um, it's really just this primal. The best thing of all is this primal thing that first attracted me to it in, at the beginning, and that is this: there is a wonder and a magic about being able to come up with an idea in your head and turn it into three-dimensional reality, mm. not just something you look at, but something you use that affects your own life, like a kitchen or a chest of drawers, you know. So it gives you pleasure when you use it, as well as when you see it, it stores things efficiently for you, um, or it can be a table at which you do your kitchen design work for other people, <laughs> as I do on our kitchen table. <laughs> um, I mean, there's just a magic to me. It's like being a wizard. It's like waving a magic <laughs> wand, except that there's a lot of labor that goes into waving of the magic wand. Yeah. <laughs> but just there's, it's, it's just endlessly awe-inspiring to me that you can learn the skills to make things, whatever skills you've learned, whether it's carving spoons or bowls, book finding, whatever. And with those skills and a few materials and tools, you can take, you can create a functional and pleasing order out of disparate parts mm. that would never mm. have gone together on their own. Right. I just love to be part of that process. Wow. And for me, that process reaches its greatest completion when I'm doing things to customers who, um, whose lives then are, are enriched on a daily basis by their use of the things that I've made because that just adds this whole social dimension it and I don't mean in terms of social networking or social media I mean there's just there's a gift aspect to it that oh my work brings you know it it somehow something of me is in each of those people's lives on a daily basis mm -hmm. in a benign way that's really lovely mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. Yeah, that's super cool. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Um, so is there a person or a type of person inside of woodworking that you admire and maybe someone outside of woodworking? Oh, my gosh. I, <laughs> if this was on the list, I apologize because um, I have not prepared for this question. There are so <laughs> many people as prepared <laughs> It's, I mean, in woodworking and outside of woodworking, that it would kind of be foolish for me to even give you any name. Right. Okay. That's well, okay. okay. Having said I'm not going to name someone, can I name someone? <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course. Just because he really occupies a special position in my mind, and that is Freddie Roman. Freddie is this deeply thoughtful, extremely hardworking, principled, 
entrepreneurial, insanely highly skilled woodworker. Yeah. Yeah. Who was trained in Phil Lowe's shop and um, occasionally does work for museums, mm-hmm. makes reproduction pieces of federal furniture, for yeah. example, for museums that he isn't even allowed to talk about or publish <laughs> because um, of agreements, mm. you know, with particular museums and stuff. But he has no problem whatsoever um, working on, like, dog-damaged staircases Mm -hmm. or restoring architectural columns and dental molding on the third story of a building. Mm -hmm. And as he says, if you want to make a living in this field, you better familiarize yourself with Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, he runs the gamut from Mm -hmm. the highest level of fine furniture making to very good, top-notch, properly informed um, historic preservation work for interiors and exteriors of buildings and making kitchens, just all over the map. Mm -hmm. Um, his work ethic, his intelligence, his appreciation for the everyday, his general fairness towards people. I just think the world is ready. Mm-hmm. That is so powerful. And I love, too, that you just mentioned fairness. I think that that's such an undervalued quality when it's present. It is. He's an admirable human being. I think you're spot on with the kind of just like, authentic like authentically presented like personality like there's no facade it's just right you can tell he's a nice guy right (laughs) he's not he's not um doing some of the more obnoxious kinds of Mm self-branding stuff and he doesn't exclude the stuff about his life and his work that many people do exclude mm-hmm. because they think it won't go over well. Mm-hmm. It's unpopular. It's mm-hmm. not cool. Mm-hmm. It's not as cool, whatever. I don't think Freddie worries too much about what other people think. He, he really wants, he's got that same drive to just sort of say, look, you can have all of your pretensions and branding bullshit mm-hmm. but here's my experience and my experience has shown me that my that this is shared by a lot of other people so maybe the world would be a better place and we would all get along better and be nicer to each other if we just dropped yeah that kind of <laughs> I'm into it. That's yeah, awesome. It's so good. No, he is a, a wonderful dude. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so, Nancy, outside of woodworking, what else are you interested in? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Gardening. I have my garden, which is a longstanding sort of passion in the real sense of the word, which oh. is to say it brings me a lot of pleasure and a lot of pain. Mm. Um because it takes a lot of time and I don't really like working. I don't like Indiana summers and that's where we live. And mm-hmm. so I don't 
I no longer enjoy the work, especially in the summer when it's really hot and humid and foggy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do it, I keep it up for the most part, even though a few years ago I just thought, that's it, I'm going to dig up all my plants and give them to friends, but I didn't. <laughs> I dug up a bunch and gave them to friends, but I <laughs> just couldn't, I just couldn't say goodbye to the whole thing. So, yeah. And I love writing. I mean, I love writing. And I love animals in general. I mean, I don't love ticks, but <laughs> ticks are animals. You know, I try to be fair, but I do love dogs and cats and horses and many other animals, which is part of why I have a book that I've been working on for Lost Art Press called Shock Tales, but in this case, it's T-A-I-L-S, mm. and it's about a number of the animals who have been part of my life, whether as pets or just someone else's mouse or an injured turkey buzzard on the side of the road oh. or a pigeon who just, a morning dove who just happens to be injured, and, mm-hmm. and I took care of it until... I'm not going to say what happened. It's part of the story. But um, so, so yeah, I love animals. They're one of the really most enriching things about my life, hmm. the relationship with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and writing that book has been an immense joy for me over the past few months. So working oh, sporadically. Awesome. Yeah. So those are, and food. I love food. But mm. right now, <laughs> eating a lot a much more limited diet because I'm trying to do what I have read is better mm. it will improve my prospects of getting through can- cancer so mm-hmm. um, and a lot of things don't taste right mm. so if mm. you've ever heard about chemo and what it does to your sense of smell and taste so mm-hmm. um, a lot of things do taste rather like Kind of like paper mache paste. Oh my! So I use a lot of spices. So I've been doing a lot of cooking with uh, ginger and mm-hmm. turmeric and cumin and garlic. And um, not only are all of those things good to do because they're antioxidants and um, such, but also um, they don't taste like cardboard. <laughs> <laughs> They make food taste really good. At least it still tastes good, and I'm hoping it will continue to. Yeah. So those are a few things I enjoy. I'm I'm just you know, I'm very basic. <laughs> I thought it was kind of interesting that many of the spices you listed that you've been cooking with recently also were spices that you listed that went into that tuna fish that your dad made a while ago. <laughs> Yeah, but All that's because he put everything. <laughs> I mean, if we had had asafoetida in the kitchen, which is an emetic, but in Indian cooking it's used as a spice, he would have put that in. Um, I mean, he literally did not know how much of anything. Fortunately, those things and the curry powder um, overpowered the weirder 
components, which I'm sure included cinnamon and nutmeg, <laughs> which are not frequently found in tuna salad. Oh, it's so that just <laughs> oh, it just totally cracks me up. Oh man. It's just not very often that you, you know, you go in, we we're talking about expectations earlier, <laughs> and I'm going in reading your book, Kitchen Think, being dutiful, going through the introduction, <laughs> and and then I'm just laughing my ass off <laughs> as I'm just reading this introduction to what I think is going to be like, you know, how to rethink about your kitchen space, which of oh. course it is as well, but it's just, there's so much just hilarious <laughs> stuff in there yeah and but then also tied in with like just tightly knitted alongside great information so i would just i don't know i just love your writing so <laughs> it's so good. oh well thank you that means a lot to me i mean i have to make it fun mm -hmm. and chris and megan fitzpatrick have provided a great example of how they make their writing fun mm -hmm. and um and i just appreciate enormously the opportunity to interject those little bits of fun mm -hmm. in my writing about a subject that could just be numbingly boring. <laughs> <laughs> and after all, what kitchens are really about is cooking, right. not the cabinets. Yeah. Right, so. right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, um, and also just for our listeners who might not be familiar with the Lost Art Press, um, we did talk about it a little bit in our episode with Weta Vincent. Mm. Oh, good. Could mm -hmm. you sort of give people just a little idea of what they do? Oh, I would be delighted. Um, I first, let me just say, I first became aware of Lost Art Press. And I'm saying that in that way because my phone often writes law, like the legal profession, mm. start press. <laughs> And I want to make sure people know, you know, that's voice recognition. It's very creative. Uh -huh. um, so <laughs> it's Lost Art Press. Um, I first became aware of the company or business, um, the publishing company. Oh, man, maybe around 2014 when a woodworking friend who had taken class I taught at Kelly Mailer's school many years ago in 2007 maybe or 2006 sent me a link to i think an online a, a pdf of the anarchist toolkit and and i kind of you know was peripherally aware of them for a while and then i started subscribing to the blog and it's like oh my god do these people do anything other than write so, <laughs> Every day there's a blog, at least one blog <laughs> post. And, but as I started to read the blog more carefully and I, um, I became more interested, I realized there's actually an awful lot of content that's very valuable that they are making available to people at no charge. And at some point, I think it was when they published Largue Menuisier. Um, that is the French, I believe it, I'm probably totally messing this up, but I bought the book, which was a hundred dollars purely because once I read the description of how they produced their books, i.e. that in this case, they had republished their own edition of an old book about, um, traditional woodworking techniques in France. 
um, um, by Rubo, R-O-U-B-O. They had published this and it was all done in America. So the printing and the binding were done in America. It was an American produced book. It was a hardcover book on top quality paper with top quality binding. And I read this and I was like, what kind of crazy person would try to make a living (laughs) by reviving this lost art, not just the lost dimensions of the arts of woodworking, but of book printing and publishing. I was completely blown away. Like, I am not even going to read this book, but I'm going to buy it because I can't not support a company that would do this, that would be publishing books that are 100% produced in America Mm-hmm. After the 2008 recession, mm-hmm. which drove so many publishers of books and magazines out of business, um, that this guy, Chris Schwartz, um, has researched his, this niche of the publishing business and is convinced that there is a market for this. And he is putting his livelihood on the line to do it. I just like, I can't not support this. It's mm-hmm. too amazing. We need so much more of this in the world. And and then I got to know much more about them, Chris. Megan was more loosely associated because she was still working for Popular Woodworking. And mm-hmm. then there's Tara Yule and others who are involved. I just was a total convert. Mm-hmm. And... So I started buying more of their books whenever there was a book of interest to me. And my appreciation for what Chris was doing just grew exponentially as I saw the diverse titles coming out. And at some point, I I can't remember, I put it in Kitchen Sink, whatever the date was. It might have been 2016. He contacted me by direct message through Instagram and asked if I'd be interested in maybe talking about doing a book for them. And I was like, oh my God, I cannot believe I've just died. On <laughs> so uh, that's just a little bit about what they do. I mean, they publish books about all kinds of different dimensions of mm-hmm. woodworking and woodworkers. And so they have a growing body of titles that are dedicated to, that are about particular woodworkers, such as um, Jake Prenoff, for example, or Jonathan Fisher, um, that's Joshua Klein's book. Um, it's just, the best I can say is, and I would have to include Chris and Megan up there with Freddie Roman, mm. among people mm-hmm. I admire. Mm-hmm. at the off-the-charts level. Um, cool. This is an outfit that does outstanding work, is very transparent, is constantly educating its customers about why things cost what they do. There's a certain, there's a lot of Venn diagram level overlap between our thoughts about value and mm-hmm. the importance of educating people about the things that we use 
and and I just also have to add that major caveat. This isn't I'm not singing their praises because I write for them. I write for them because I sing their praises because I have such enormous admiration for people and what they do. Cool. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I'm really glad that I asked. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's good. Um. Oh, okay. So if someone wants to see more of your work, where can they find you? Well, there's always my website, nrhillerdesign.com, which I am horrible about updating. Um, and, you know, it just looks the same as it has for the last several years. So I know that's like wrap on the knuckles, not good, <laughs> whatever. I don't get most of my work through my website. Mm. I just refer people to it as a place where they can get an idea of the diversity of the work I do mm -hmm. and the kitchens and the furniture and what kind of skills and materials I bring to the process. Mm -hmm. um, and there are also links to a number of things I've written there. But so my website's good and then Instagram where I am just N R H I L L E R N R Hiller. Um, I post a certain amount of stuff there. Um, those are the main places. Yeah. Really? That's I great. I mean, am I missing something that I'm supposed to say? No, no, no. no. <laughs> we just, we, <laughs> we just like to have, um, like if people are interested, if you know, to, to, uh, find out more about your work or like to see it. Right. Uh, we give that, right. uh, that information to everybody. So. Yeah. Yeah. It just turns out that, you know, with the audio format, it makes picturing what they do very difficult. <laughs> oh, I, I hear you, except in, you know, these days, I think whenever I hear an interview with someone I find really interesting or inspiring, like on my hair on NPR or elsewhere, I just Google the name. And I don't, yeah. I often don't even know how to spell it, but it's so easy to find that's mm -hmm. so true mm -hmm. yeah so but i realized that not everyone does that which is why i'm constantly putting hyper hot links into my blog post mm -hmm. mm. like, you know mm -hmm. dude just google it but <laughs> if you're not willing to expend that effort let me make it easier for you <laughs> right so. yes, exactly. right <laughs> It's so bad. It's like past a, a path of least resistance, really. Yes. <laughs> right. Or if it's something I really want people to be sure to check out, then I will do what I can to ease the way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Nancy, thank you so much for, um, we know you have a lot going on right now. Yeah. And we just really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us and share about your experiences. It's been just so nice. So thank you. Oh, thank you for your interest. And I appreciate that you cover a diversity of craft, um, which is uh, not the norm, I think. A lot of podcasts specialize in one particular kind of work. So that's cool and commendable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> okay. Next up, we have an interview with natural builder and fellow podcast host, Jeffrey Hart. This is an extra special episode, too, as it is half of an intercontinental <laughs> podcast collaboration, <laughs> um, which basically just means that Jeffrey has also interviewed us for his show, Building Sustainability, 
which will be released on the same day that his is. Um, so be sure to check it out. At any rate, to give you a preview of our interview with Jeffrey, here is a brief clip. And I think anyone that sort of stepped into a, a natural building will always say like there's a feeling, there's something about it, and no one can really put their their finger on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to now know, and this is why it's it's like I won't shut up about it now because since I've discovered <laughs> it, it's like yes, it's answering all the things. It's why I love craft. It's why I love building. It's yeah, it's all these things. <laughs> What do we get? So a free way to support us is to rate and review the show. And please subscribe while you're at it. And thank you to everyone who has taken the time to rate us by dropping one of the five stars or five of the five stars or somewhere <laughs> in between. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and or <laughs> reviewed us. That's um, super helpful feedback and it helps people find the show. Mm-hmm. Um, subscribing also makes it so that our latest episode is automatically downloaded to your device as soon as it's released. So... Sometimes there's like a weird delay when we release it and when it actually becomes searchable on the internet. Mm. Um, So this just keeps that from happening. It bypasses that. Yeah. So just, uh, you know, I never subscribed to things before, but now that I understand how it works, I see the point. (laughs) (laughs) It hasn't changed your behavior, though. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just don't really listen to very many podcasts. (laughs) Oh, okay. So... Thank you to everyone who has supported us on Patreon. It helps pay for our website, hosting the audio, recording equipment, and other bills. And more support means making the show a more sustainable endeavor. As many of you know, we've committed 15% of our donated income to putting money towards craft scholarships. Which, by the way, we have already raised uh, like over 400 bucks for crafty scholarships this year so that's super exciting it is really exciting yes so thank you so much to all of our uh, one-time donors through our website Mm -hmm. and um, I guess sustaining support through Patreon (laughs) thank you to our patrons (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) we uh, also have some benefits listed for the various tiers on Patreon and we also added um, another tier at the top end of things Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, We'll also support um, two of our previous guests, Akira Mm -hmm. Sataki and Erica Moody. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, be sure to check that out. Mm -hmm. So you can follow us on Instagram at Cut the Craft Podcast to see images of our guesswork and stay up to date on happenings and releases. And you can find us both on Instagram at Amy underscore Umble and at BH Beidler. And thank you so much to our sponsors, John C. Campbell Folk School in North Carolina, North House Folk School in Minnesota, and the North Bennett Street School in Massachusetts, all of whom play a huge part in keeping handcraft alive and thriving through their various craft-related workshop offerings. And of course, thanks to Brad Vetter for your graphic design, to the High Divers and Luke Mitchell of the High Divers for your music and help with production. And for Justin Williams for writing those little tidbits that introduce the guest each episode. So we hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did make it. Thanks. See you next time. <laughs>